of Thelma, granddaughter of Eula, great-granddaughter of Sarah, great-great-granddaughter of Adeline, great-great-great-granddaughter of Mary Jane, niece to many, aunt to many more, sister to Patrice, Belinda, Mary, and Jacqueline, mother to Dominique, and I am here because I am your sister friend. Sisterfest, a two-part celebration of mothers, daughters, sisters, and sister friends, coming up on the Janice Adams Show. First, the news. excited to be able to do this today and to be with everybody today. Why a sister fest? Now, I wrote down some quotes that I just thought were phenomenal, and I'm going to share them with you. A sister, said Toni Morrison, can be someone who is both ourselves and very much not ourselves, a special kind of double. Of two sisters, one is always the watcher, one the dancer. Louise Glick. Sisters function as safety nets in a chaotic world simply by being there for each other. Amy Lee. This one, I don't know who said it, but it's wonderful. She said a sister is God's way of proving she doesn't want us to walk alone. Linda Sunshine said, more than Santa Claus, your sister knows when you've been naughty or nice. Unknown again, our roots say we're sisters, but our hearts say we're friends. And this from Sunny Gupta, sister is our first friend and our second mother. So welcome to the Sister Days Mother-Daughter Sister Fest, a no-holds-barred intergenerational conversation featuring some of my dear sister friends, phenomenal women, Thank you, dear sister Maya Angelou. And phenomenally enough, we're live streaming this event so that you and women the world over will be able to join us. So thank you for being here, for sharing your time and your thoughts with us, for chatting with us in real time here on the site. We'll respond to as many of you as we can in the chat or you can chat with each other. So to begin, I'm Janice Adams, daughter of Muriel, granddaughter of Myra and Lena, grandmother of Samiko and Skye, mother of Ayo and Dara. I'm the author of the book that inspired this event, Sister Days, 365 Inspired Moments in African-American Women's History. And today we're adding another truly inspired moment with this event, um, celebrating ourselves and our lives with today's inspiring speakers. Elle Cole is here. Elle, who are you and how did you come to be who you are? I'm Elle Cole, granddaughter of Carrie Cruz and daughter of Mary Cole and mother of Layla and Maya. I came to be here because I am one of your sister friends. Absolutely. And Deborah Peyton Jones, who are you and how did you come to be here today? I am Deborah, daughter of Thelma, granddaughter of Eula, great-granddaughter of Sarah, great-great-granddaughter of Adeline, great-great-great-granddaughter of Mary Jane, niece to many, aunt to many more, sister to Patrice, Belinda, Mary, and Jacqueline, mother to Dominique, and I am here because I am your sister friend. Thank you, dear sister friend. Dakota. Hello, I am Dakota. I am the daughter of Ursula, sister 
of Hunter, granddaughter of Nancy and Minnie. And I came to be here because I am given the pleasure of being Janice's sister friend. You absolutely are. Irma, you please. I am Irma Pearl McLaren. I am daughter of Benny Pearl McLaren, granddaughter of Mamie Portis Williams and Lula Bell McLaren, mother of Zena Carlota Pearl Allen and Antonio Maceo Allen. I am an activist anthropologist, author of the award-winning Black Feminist Anthropology, Theory, Politics, Praxis, and Poetics, and founder of the Irma McLaurin Black Feminist Archive that is dedicated to making Black women visible and heard. And I am here as Janice's sister friend for many, many years. Thank you. Marianne Howland. Well, good morning, afternoon, evening, whatever you're viewing in from. And I am just delighted to be here. I am the daughter of June Irene Ezel. I am the granddaughter of Martha Howland and Mary Ezel. And unfortunately, because of our a riff in our history, I'm disconnected from the rest of my family in terms of knowing who they are. But I know I am a descendant of some very proud Africans. I am the mother of John Robert Howland. I'm a single mom and very proud to be a mother. That's my very first role in um, my womanhood. And I am uh, proud to be here amongst all of these powerful women and um, just delighted that Janice, my sister from, it's been about a year and a half and we've become fast friends and, and mentors to each other. And I'm just delighted to be here and share this wonderful day with you. Thank you, Marianne. You know, in, in the book, I, I wrote this opening and it, it was on the days my grandmother would tire, her stories used up, her memories dim. I remember how she would croon to herself, I'd write a book, but who would read it and yet go on? From the stories of all our grandmothers, and that's why I wanted to open with that today, from the stories of all our grandmothers untold, and for their very great and very grandchildren, here, I hope, are the stories they would have written. Here is their power, their strength, their days, their ways, their pain. Here are their woes and their problem solving, their laughter and their haughty, naughty ways. Here too are our stories, the ones we would put into hope chests, woven into tapestries, knowing that we today are the ancestors of tomorrow. And as you read of these, our sister days, as you hear of these sister days with our sister friends, somewhere beyond our grandma's smile. For you to share, these are the stories they have told us to keep the measure of our sister days. Deborah, I go to you because you gave us an extraordinary swath of our sister days in the names that you were able to call forth. And I couldn't help think that, you know, for six women of African descent, six women whose ancestors went through the Middle Passage, for you to be able to go back that far kind of speaks for all our grandmothers, great-grandmothers, and great-great-grandmothers. Would you tell us about them? My daughter and I have been on this journey for about six or seven years uh, through Ancestry.com, we felt that that was a, a wonderful medium that we could use to then try to uh, corroborate some of the information that we've gotten. Um, we've also collected obituaries from family members to be able to verify information that we've gotten on Ancestry.com. We also went to my mother's family's uh, cemetery plots to then photograph the, the headstones to continue to corroborate the information that we've gathered through Ancestry.com. And then there are links that we have then found. And 
So it's just been a labor of love. We, we tend to get overwhelmed with the information that we have because with every idea or every link, we then have to go through and verify and research whether or not it is accurate or not. We've, we've kept some, we've um, gotten rid of others, but it's been a mother-daughter phenomenal opportunity to share something that I will then leave with her and then she will then share with others. So it's, it's been amazing. Can you tell us the story of one of those women in, you know, your legacy or their legacy being you, just one of them? We can go to my grandmother, Eula. Uh, my grandmother, Eula Bartlett, was born in Greenville, North Carolina, and lived in the... Uh, lived in North Carolina, it, it, a lot of the areas changed names. And so we we can say Camden County was primarily, if we say Camden County instead of the other areas. And she was um, born to a husband wife family that lived in Camden County. Um, but she, she died soon after childbirth with my mother. And she had a daughter two years older and her dying wish was to have her two daughters not be separated. And they were separated because back in the 19, this is 1920s, uh, back in the 1920s, you went with whoever was going to take you and then you allowed the father to then find his way. And, and he did. Uh, my grandfather became an insurance salesperson and had a car <laughs> back in the 1930s and traveled all around selling insurance. But he then brought his girls back. So he listened to his wife's dying wish. And although they were separated for about nine years, he brought them back together and then made sure that both of them graduated from North Carolina Central for coloreds at the time. And so it was just an amazing story that the my grandmother, her dying wish, it was uh, delayed, but it was then realized and her daughters, graduated from college in the 1940s. So uh, it was just a legacy of love. And so that's that's one of the stories I will tell. Wow, thank you. You know, I am gonna start this discussion off to so that we all get to hear and know each other, but this really is just a conversation for us to just jump in and do what we would do if we were all in the same room. Irma, I'm thinking of you because you have, as an anthropologist, you have another way to tell us about ourselves. Is there a, a surprise? I mean, you've written Women of Belize, but is there a surprising story that you would share with us about who we are? I think for myself, uh, I wanted to go back to the comment that someone made about the breach that we have. And I think that's what I'm finding. While I have some of my mother's uh, details, there are a lot of gaps and silences. And I think that has motivated me to found the Black Feminist Archive so that we can begin to preserve and document those stories. I come from a family where illiteracy was, um, you know, the, the part of the day. So I don't have a history of people going to college. My father had a second grade education. I don't know uh, how much education his mother had, but his grandparents were deceased before he was born. So these gaps and things are really important to me to try and document and preserve what we know now. And as people build that history and find out to make sure that those kinds of things, um, you know, make us more visible and heard. And so one of the people that I am, who's gonna be in my archive is Miss Archie Jones. She just passed away last month. She was 97. She was the first Black woman to get a master's in anthropology at the University of Washington. And they didn't know what to do with her, so they kept her in that program for eight years because they couldn't figure out what she would do with a Black educated woman with a degree in anthropology of all things in the 1940s. And one of the promises that she had her daughter make was that her papers, even though she never was in an academic environment, she continued to research and write and share with her community and so my, what I plan to do is to help her daughter when the 
you know, the, the grieving is done is to help her gather those papers and make sure that they get to the archive and that they're protected and preserved. Thank you. Um, Dakota, we, we've said this is an intergenerational conversation. And when you, you know, participate in this group, but when you think about the legacies of Black women, what are you looking at from, from your start in, yeah. on this journey? I mean, I feel like my journey really started understanding my own race, being mixed race and being raised by a black mother and a white dad. It, it really, I started to really look into who I was and the legacy that I had and what I was carrying on really during the pandemic. And after the murder of George Floyd, I realized that I had a responsibility to understand myself so that I could, in my own journey and racial trauma, in order to really truly stand up for what I believe in. And I, so I did a huge um, kind of project of finding my family tree because we, we didn't know pretty much anything really about my mom's side of the family like I mean we didn't know about where we had come from or things like that it was really hard and a lot of black people go through that anyways because it's so hard to find your ancestry because so many records get murky and it it was a really big project that I took on it was so interesting and also my my mom's grandma was adopted. So there were a lot of things that were just, that I got to look into. And I really got to see how many amazing like women I came from. And I never got to meet my grandma on my mom's side um, because she died before I was born. And so I didn't really know a lot of the black women that I had come from. And it was so amazing looking into that and seeing the generations that I was descended from. And it was, it was just absolutely empowering looking at what was, what all these women that I had come from went through and who they were and it was such an amazing thing to do. And I, I feel incredibly lucky that I was able to take that time to figure out who I was. And it really helped me to understand where I want to go in this world, being mixed race and how I wanted to just honor the women that I came from. And that's, that's what I, that was when I really started that journey of being young generation, mixed race woman who came from so many amazing black women before me. And it, it was just such an eye-opening experience. You mentioned your mother's mom who unfortunately died before you were born, your father's mom, but you've mentioned yourself as the granddaughter of both. So tell us just one detail about each of them. Well, my my grandma on my dad's side, she is such a accepting and wonderful woman. And I'm very glad that I, I've gotten to know her. And she tells me so many stories about... Um, about my mom's mom, my other grandma, and how they were just best friends before she passed. And they were so close. And that's another really amazing thing. My, um, my parents, they grew up in Iowa. My mom's from Des Moines and my dad is from a really small town. And it was, it was really big when they got married because um, they met in college and it was such a big thing when they got married. It was like in the newspaper because it was the first interracial marriage to happen in my dad's town. My my grandma always talks so highly of my other grandma who passed 
and she I can just feel how close that they were and the fact that they were able to be so close being um a white and a black woman in like small Iowa during that time and just it was I think it's they're they both just really I hope to make both of them proud and my grandma that passed all I hear about her is what a hard-working woman she was my my mom when she was seven her dad had a stroke that left him handicapped and so my grandma took care of her four kids and her husband and she worked to make her family successful she put both of her daughters through college and helped with that she was so amazing and she took care of my grandpa she took care of everyone around her and then and my my grandma my dad's side is the same way she is my dad's family is swedish and norwegian and they actually my grandpa came over from there they immigrated from there and she's i just i hear so much about like the history and um that culture and i just feel like i get i get to come from two very amazing grandmas who i'm so proud to come from them wow thank you so much for sharing that i mean i just as you're speaking i'm just saying how it got over how it got over my soul looks back and wonder how it got over and it was so many women going through so much it's not about saying it was easy it's about saying it's possible. And that's what really strikes me with the stories that, that you just shared. So thank you. The SisterFest Mother Daughter SisterFest, a celebration of women and our lives. On our guest panel, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. More after the break here on the Janice Adams Show. here on the Janice Adams Show for the Sister Days Mother Daughter Sister Fest, a two-part special celebrating mothers, daughters, sisters, and sister friends with our guests, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, Elle Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. Here's Elle. I had a grandmother who lived with me until I was around eight years old. And then she moved to Philadelphia to live with my aunt. And growing up with her, I got to hear a lot of stories about her youth and her childhood growing up in North Carolina. She grew up in Durham, North Carolina. And since then, I've been able to visit the area that she grew up because they had a family home with a family garden and they um, had an agriculture lifestyle. So um, I was able to see where my grandmother played and grew up and um, it was the whole neighborhood. So as I, I ride through that area, it's an area where all of my cousins and extended family live. So this is on my maternal side and I have older sisters. I am the youngest of five. And so my older sisters are much older than me. So they all have stories of playing out there and visiting other family members. And for me, it was, it's a feeling of freedom when I get to to walk on the land and go there. Unfortunately though, as an adult, Many of the land has been sold since I um, have come of age. And so I no longer have the freedom to just go and see the, the land and see the gravesite like I did when I was a child, when my grandmother's brothers were alive. And so I think for me, that's kind of bittersweet because I think having land in your family is something that we should keep. And it's something, owning property is something that I'm really passionate about. And I wish that 
other extended family members were just as passionate as I am about it. And so it's been one of those journeys where being the youngest, I kind of have to play catch up with learning my history, but I have been able to meet many of my um, older family members. I, the oldest family member that I've met was actually on my mom's dad's side. She was 104 when I met her, my aunt Hattie. And it was amazing to see someone over a hundred years old, full of life. And she told many stories because her family um, was from Florida and that's where she grew up. And so what I always loved in talking with my elders was finding where I fit in the picture. Who am I like? Who, you know, who smiles like me? Who's a go-getter like me? And so I have had that privilege of being compared to many of my older female ancestors because some of them are were very organized, some of them were creators, some of them were educators, and I share all of those characteristics. And so I think um, it's something that I, I love about family. It's something that we can research. And even though we may not have all of the answers, there are different puzzle pieces that we can connect and find. So if anybody loves mysteries, I that's how I view having a family. It's like unlocking <laughs> mysteries. And so um, I've had that honor and I, you know, just having this conversation with you all, it's like I have to ask my older sisters some more questions so that I can get some more answers. And recently we've had a family reunion. We um, come from the Blacknall family line in North Carolina, and it's one of the largest group of descendants of slaves that get together. And we recently had a marker that was created. And last summer, I was able to watch uh, virtually how they how the marker was placed in a certain area. And it's a place that I can actually drive and take my children to. And so I haven't gotten an opportunity to take them yet, but that's the next stop on my, when we start doing road trips this summer, that's the stop that I would love to make to show my children where they come from. And um, my ancestor, Blacknall, he was a, a blacksmith. And so learning more about history, I think it helps you kind of mark your path in life. And for me, that's finding ways to unlock new doors, just like my ancestor did in the past. Hey, just to let you know, I'm located in Raleigh, North Carolina. So I'm just down the street from Durham. And yes. I've been working with the Black Cemetery here in Raleigh that you might be interested in. So let me know when you're in the area. Yes, that's awesome because one of my older ancestors is from the Nightdale area. And that's where they came from. So that's one of the things I learned this past summer. So I definitely will take you up on that offer. <laughs> Matt, that that's what it's about. That is what it's about. Mary asked about collections. Yes, that's it. That's what it's about. Marianne. Yeah. So I'm listening to all of you share these remarkable stories about what you've learned about your family background. And uh, Deborah, I my my brother started. Uh, he read a registry at Ancestry.com, and so we're just beginning kind of that journey and trying to understand more about our history and I, I was reluctant to name names because we're still in the process as you define of confirming what is fact and knowing <laughs> uh, really understanding you know what is the real connection the only thing that i we know for sure is we are actually the howlands are descendants from the mayflower and i know so we've been able so i'm a confederate what, what do you call it women <laughs> The, you, you are a DAR, daughters of right, the right, right, right. So we, we're gonna sign up and go to the party, but um, <laughs> so, but I will say this that about that disconnect. What I what is apparent in my family is the impact of trauma, such that you know I I, I think about the women in my family who, who I've been able to learn from and experience and, and hold up as, you know, my proud heritage. And those are 
my mother's aunts, my great aunts, Ali, Lillian, Margaret, that lived to be 107, 104, 101, incredible women who, who, though they lived those long lives, and, and they all died when I was pretty, you know, I was fairly young, like, you know, before I was maybe 10 years old, but I got to meet them and, and spend some time with a few of them. And they, they did not tell a lot of stories. What, what I did know was, for example, my aunt Ollie, who was so elegant you know, by the time when, when she died, she was still wearing stilettos and still wearing like feather boas. And I mean, very, and she had come from, in her young years, she had been a maid. And so she had acquired like gifts from her, her employers that were these beautiful china and some of the clothes. And, and so I remember being able to go to visit her house and marvel at this incredibly beautiful, and I thought she was rich. You know, I just remember that as a little kid. I'm thinking, oh my God, my, my, she must be a millionaire because she had all these beautiful things. But those were things that were given to us. Similarly, Aunt Margaret, same things. They're both of, all of them had grown up in an era of being maids. And so the, any, any of their acquisitions were typically through that. Uh, my Margaret married well, though, because she was very beautiful. So she was able to, you know, along the way, pick up a couple of fine gents who took good <laughs> care of her, and, you know, so she lived in a, in a nice house and, and so forth. But those women represented to me because one of the things about them is that they were not, these were not shrinking violets. These women were, tell it like it is, proud to be who they were, and always treated me with such respect and made, taught me to hold my chin high and, you know, be, be you know, confident in who I was. However, that, that was my great aunt, but my mom, who grew up, you know, through, she was, she was born in the late 20s and went through and very poor and her father, you know, had to move them around a lot. So there was never any ownership. It was just trying to like survive. So they were always in survival mode and she was the oldest daughter. She also grew up in a period when, you know, to be black, you know, was, was for her and she's a dark woman. And so that was something that was like a, something, a barrier, a, a, a heavy load to, to carry, to bear the burden of being a dark black woman. And so that was very much a part of her character, her belief system, her trauma. And I know that it was passed on to me because my experience of my mother was always this, I, I'll never forget this, her, 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 she used to always say, she was always worried about what other people would think that I grew up always worried about what other people would think. And the other people were always white people. And so we always had to behave a certain kind of way and, 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 and to be able to, you know, break through the barrier of just because we were black did not mean that we did not walk a certain way or, or behave a certain way that would not shame us. So that's kind of the upbringing that I had. So there wasn't, the, the sense of pride for me really came through Angela Davis and Nikki Giovanni. Those were the women who really changed my life because when I read Nikki's Ego Trippin', I was just like, oh my God, for the first time, totally felt the sense of, I am bad, I'm fierce, just as her poem tells us. <laughs> And Angela Davis with the big fro, you know, standing up, you know, for, you know, black power. So that was my, was coming into my own, was really through the voices of women who I read, Zora Neale Hurston and, you know, Toni Morrison and, you know, all the Alice Walker, the authors, people like Janice were, were the women in my life who really, um, help me through this journey to today. I, I am an author myself really because of Zora. Zora gave me the confidence to f help me find my voice and gave me courage to put it in words in a book. It was through the 
you know, images of, of my great aunts who, and I have pictures of them and they're mounted on my, on a wall, a special like museum, a, 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 you know, tribute area for them because I look at them with their chins held high and beautiful women. And then I think about these women that I've read about and that's where my strength comes. Now, what my mother did tell, teach me though, because she was a very important person in helping me, I would not be who I am today if it was not for my mom. Though she was traumatized and though she, and I, I could tell a story that would make your heart cry about my mom, the impact that it had on my mom, just a few, like in her eighties, we went on a trip to Santa Fe and we were at a spa enjoying the day. And I tried to convince my mom to, she, she was very funny about not letting people touch her body. So she didn't want any of the services. She was not having it. She was content to sit in the corner and read her book. But I tried to get her to, to enjoy it. There was a part in the, in the spa where you could sit and there was a waterfall and you could just soak your feet. And so I said, well, mom, why don't you, you know, just sit there and enjoy that. And when I asked her if she wanted to do that, she very, you know, in a very small voice said, no, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And I, I, I was kept trying, why not? And then finally she says, because they'll all get out. And I, re and I was devastated that at, in her eighties, that was her life. That was what had been imprinted on her, that kind of racism. And so I, um, I, you know, I, so, so when I think about my mom, despite that her strength was this woman is the most independent, fierce, badass. When it came to, when she made a decision about anything that she was going to do in life, girlfriend did it. She, she, when she divorced my father, she went and bought her own house. She raised, you know, the kids, you know, it was me and my daughter. I have, there are five of us, but two of us were, um, still under her, uh, care by the time that happened. And I, you know, so I, I grew up with this idea that one, I don't really need a man to like take care of me. I can do that myself because I watched my mother do it. I watched her, you know, leave, buy a house, take care of the kids, get all these, you know, incredible jobs. She was really smart. She could, you know, she was an executive secretary. She was badass. And then as a grown, as a, as a grandmother, she, you know, took, you know, loved, loved her grandkids, but she took up the art of quilting and began quilt, making quilts for orphans of, for left in the hospital, you know, she would do them in dozens and give them to the church. So she was always this aspect of her that was very giving as well as, um, making sure that she took care of us in the best way that she knew how. And I hold her in high respect for that because that has given me the courage as a single mom to not be afraid to be confident in my own ability to do the job that it needs to get done and raising my son to be the best man that he can be. Wow. You know, when you started telling that story about your mom and the water, I knew where you were going. And it's just amazing because the trauma of, of America is so indelible that even when we know better, here we are still struggling with, with you know, legacies really of still needing to put in the forefront of our minds, not offending those who have been so violently offensive to us. And so I think it's really, I, I'm grateful to you for telling that story because I can think of stories like that in, in my own family's life. Um, a, a cousin and my mom, my family is from the Caribbean. On one hand, you know, you still have that colonialism that was part of their heritage. But on the other level, then their, my grandparents' generation grew up still in a majority Black society. Um, so you get some of that, thank goodness, as well. But I remember that after their ancestral homes were independent nations, my mom and her cousin decided to go daughters of twins. So twins are in my family as they are in Elle's family. They decided to take a trip back to St. Kitts. When they were at the hotel, my cousin sitting in a now independent country sat at the age, you know, majority black 
country, um, sat at the edge of the pool, and literally that did happen. And this was in the 70s. 70s or even 80s, it could have been. And of course, all the guests were from the United States. And she was deciding what to do, and then finally she stayed in the pool. In fact, she got in full force. But still, and she was a darker complexion woman than I am. So, but still having to go through that and even just having to waste your day on, now what do I do? You know, should I really, and is anybody going to come to tell me I have to, all of that. And that is, is so much a part of, of the background that, you know, I've written three books in what is now the Glory Day series and the most recent of them being of that series, being Sister Days, the one that we're talking about now. And every time I write one of those books, I the the subtitle inspired moments in african american history is is obviously what's important but it takes so much to write those books because i have to really immerse myself in pathology in order to eke out the strains of our agency our humanity our self empowerment and self affirmation that's what makes the books worth doing. But I remember one day in writing it, I, one of the books, uh, one night, I just had to take not just one shower, but two to just get this nonsense off of me. And um, so with that said, let's get real. Three of you have locks <laughs> or braids. <laughs> I have natural hair. Dakota has natural hair. Deborah has natural hair. You know, this is a breakthrough for African-American women. You know, three of us, six of us sitting together 20 years ago even would not have all had some semblance of either, quote, natural hair or Black aesthetic inspired hair hairdos. So, hey, who's? Who, I think Marianne, you've probably had yours the longest, right? In terms um, of when you I, decided to, I think so, because you know, just kind of by definition and and ages here. How did you decide to go to locks? So, so I have an interesting hair journey. So, first of all, I have always worn natural hair. I mean, so, so I, I just was one of those people that, like I said, I'm, a, you know, Angela Davis inspired, right? So I went through my professional career, um, you know, just kind of, I would braid my hair to just give it structure, you know, so that it wasn't just vavoom. Um, <laughs> but I, I've always had a lot of hair, but I would, you know, kind of contain it in such a way, you know, do French rolls and that kind of thing, but always natural. And then, but I always really wanted locks, um, just cause I really thought they're beautiful. And so in 2003, I finally did it and I took my son. So me and my son both got locks. He was at, he was, how old was he? He was what, at nine years old, maybe? Yeah, nine years old when he got his locks. So, um, and I had reached a point in my career where I decided and because I remember when it, when I when I made the decision to do it, I, I live in Nashville. I'm not in New York. I grew you know spent most of my life in New York. I live in Nashville, and I knew that this was because people weren't wearing a lot of people weren't wearing locks. Matter of fact, I was the only black woman I knew in the city wearing locks. So I knew that it was going to be a little controversial. <laughs> Folks might might not quite understand what's going on on my head, right? So, but um because by this time I had also reached a level in my profession where I had credibility, respect as a professional. I was a successful businesswoman running a multi-million dollar ad agency. So it didn't, you know, so I was able to, you know, get away with it, if you will. And what I noticed in, and I'm not, I won't say that I'm take credit for turning, you know, this, the society in Nashville into, you know, lock wearing women, but I know lots of black women would come up to me and, and say, oh my God, your hair is so beautiful. Oh my gosh, I really wish I could do that. Cause there was this uncomfortability that 
that might not work in the workplace. But, you know, as we've seen through time, it's become more acceptable and now it's commonplace and now we celebrate it. Now they're making laws for us, right? We can <laughs> we can wear the our hair to work. Crown Act. Right, exactly. Ridiculous exactly. that we have to have a, a law in this country for black women to look like black women. Crown Act 2022. Only in America would citizens need a law to prohibit discrimination based on the texture and styling of our hair black hair. Passed in the House of Representatives, this act to create a respectful and open world for natural hair act passed the House and is stuck in committee in the Senate. Only in America. All the more reason for this Sister Day's Mother-Daughter Sister Fest, a celebration of women and our lives, with our guest panel, Dakota Nelson, Deborah Payton-Jones, Elle Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. More after the break on The Janice Adams Show. Janice Adams show for the Sister Days Mother Daughters Sister Fest, a two-part special celebrating mothers, daughters, sisters, and sister friends with our guests Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Howland, and Irma McLaurin. Actually, this is the second law because there were laws passed about black women having to cover their hair under slavery. So now this is a law that allows us to reveal our hair. And part of that law was this belief that black women's hair had power. You know, so they wanted us to cover it up because they thought we were going to be seducing white men or that it had some kind of power. And I think it's true. I was going to say, and, and you're right. (laughs) Clearly, it it does. You know, when when you think of history, there was a whole lot of seduction, if you want to blame it on that. Well, (laughs) yeah, I mean, that's the excuse. But part of it was, I think, uh, you know, it was about control. And, and, you know, my hair journey has been one. And I hope to see you in Nashville. My son is there, and he has dreadlocks down to his his, past his uh, knees at this point. He works at Vanderbilt. And he's one of the few dreadlock brothers there who works in IT in the School of Nursing. But mine began, I cut my hair when I went off to college. And my mother, you know, that was heart rendering to her. And I, I, I wore natural and I wore it for like 27 years. And I think as I got into administration down the road, it was that sense of how do you conform to get the job? Um, you know, so I did a little relaxer, I roller set my hair. And I think, unfortunately, even when I became president at Shaw, it was not necessarily acceptable, even in the black community among HBCUs. I think Janetta was the exception at Spelman, but it was not acceptable. Let's let's fill in those gaps. Um, Irma is the former president of Shaw University and I believe the first sister president of Shaw University, officially. Janetta that she's talking about is the Dr. Janetta Cole, who was the first sister president for sure of of Spelman Spelman. College, um, and really changed the landscape for black women in higher education as university president. She wasn't the first, but her presidency at uh, Spelman absolutely changed the landscape for for all those who followed. So now, Irma, back to this, when you were talking about your hair, and and I do remember growing up, um, there was a statement out there during during the um, during the Black Power era that it was harder hardest to be black at a black school. It and it, and it was true. I mean, I think so for myself. I had, you know, on the one hand, I'd actually done, um, I was a cultural consultant for a a gentleman who back in the early 90s, about 95, 96, was suing FedEx because they were trying to get him to, uh, they wanted to fire him 
for wearing dreadlocks. This must have been 95, 96. And I was the cultural consultant. He won. I mean, they they settled with him and he won. And his his example was you have these white guys who are walking around with long ponytails and all kinds of things. Why is my hair problematic? So there's that moment. And then, you know, as I'm entering into this administrative space, I'm always challenged by, you know, to what extent do I need to conform so that I can get in the space? Right. Because once you're in it, then you can sort of challenge and change. And, you know, it was making some of those decisions is like, if I have to do this to get in and then once I'm in, what are they going to do? Right. If I change my hairstyle, you know, so that was always a challenge. But I worked at Fisk as deputy provost, you know, then went to Bennett for a while while Janetta was also president at Bennett College. And then I was at Shaw University. And one of the comments had to do, I think, Janice, where you got your uh, honorary doctorate degree. I was glad, glad to be able to do that to honor my sister you, friend you with an honorary doctorate. Did. Yes, but one of the, I had hired a consultant around fundraising and the, the, con, the conversation he got from some of the women on the trustee who were black women, trustees or, or alumni, was that I needed to do something about my hair because I had I had not found a hairdresser. So I just washed my hair and put it in a French braid for some event, right? And apparently that was controversy because it wasn't done. And he was like, I'm not sure I should be the person you should be talking about. But it was the shoes I was wearing and how I was wearing my hair. Our thanks to Dakota Nelson, Deborah Peyton Jones, L. Cole, Marianne Hallen, Irma McLaurin, and to you for joining us here on the Janice Adams Show today. For more about our guests, their special projects, bios, books, and more, visit my website, JaniceAdams.com. The Janice Adams Show is produced in cooperation with WJFF Radio Catskill, Jason Dole, and Patricio Rabio post-production. The Janice Adams Show is a production of Janice Adams, LLC, all rights reserved.